So we are finishing up uh, Titus, these uh, three short chapters, and uh, today we're in Titus chapter 3. I'd really encourage you, if you haven't had time, to go check out those first two chapters. Today's chapter has been really interesting. A few things I picked out of there that I'm hoping to share with you. But what we're going to see in this third chapter is that uh, Paul is giving Titus, uh, in, in the ending of this letter, um, instruction for the Christians uh, for civil behavior within uh, the place that they live. Also, he's going to give some interesting comments on a theology of salvation and uh, why they should be uh, kind to those in authority and uh, respectful of those in authority based on their salvation. And then he's going to close out with some specific comments that were helpful for uh, Titus in his time of what uh, Paul's plans were for for those uh, apostolic delegates that uh, he was going to be sending about. Uh, so without further ado, um, Titus chapter 3, uh, verse 1, he says, Remind them, the, the church people, to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. He says, For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and detesting one another. Um, and he goes on to speak of the kindness of God. But what I want you to notice here is that um, in verse 1, he says that they are to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. That's something that's commanded throughout Scripture, uh, throughout the New Testament. And the general principle is that so long as it is not an explicit violation of a biblical command, we are to obey all that the government tells us to do. And so these may be things that are inconvenient or things we don't like or we don't necessarily agree with. But so long as it's not in direct violation with the scriptures or our faith, uh, the Bible is clearly telling us to submit to that. Now, there, there are times in which as uh, the Apostle Peter would say, um, you know, we must obey God rather than men. There are situations that do occur where the government, such as with Peter, they asked him to stop sharing the gospel. And he said, no, we're going to obey God, not you. And he was thrown in prison for that. And so uh, there are times in which uh, Christians may practice what is called a civil disobedience. But in general, so long as it's not infringing upon our faith, uh, and, and causing us in any way, shape, or form to go against our beliefs. Uh, we should be ready to submit to that government. We should be the type of people that are, as he says in verse 2, uh, that are, um, and at the end of verse 1, ready for every good work, slandering no one, avoiding fighting, uh, kind, always showing gentleness to all people. So not only for uh, our, our fellow brothers and sisters in the faith, we are to be kind and gentle, not slandering, but also for those outside of faith. The Bible says repeatedly that we should seek to live at peace, uh, if at all possible. In other words, if there's any way that we can be at peace with our neighbors in, in everything, then that's what we should pursue. Like I said, again, there, there may come times, uh, and there always through history have been these situations where we can't do this, but 
so long as it's a good thing, so long as it is uh, something that is not flying in the face of our faith, we need to seek to obey to be peaceable. And when those rare occasions, um, or sometimes common occasions, depending on what part of history or what part of the world you're living in, you're looking at, um, those things can happen. They do happen, and and uh, we have to be wise and discerning and in everything, with every law, with every um, stipulation from both government and non-government. Um, so keep that in mind. Uh, that's not to mindlessly obey, but what that is is that so long as it is uh, not against our faith, we are to be obedient and respectful because we're trying to build this reputation that fosters the gospel. So that's what he's talking about in verse 2, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, to be kind, to always show gentleness to all people. Now, Christians are to have this type of reputation, this this type of character, behavior, and lifestyle that, that is uh, attractive to the gospel. If, if we are the worst civilians as Christians, um, that's not attractive to government. That's not going to help the gospel spread. But if we are some of the best citizens, as often Christians throughout church... Um, History have been uh, noted as some of the greatest civilians. That should be our our type of um, attitude, our type of lifestyle, and it really can help further the gospel. So he goes on to say that uh, the reason why we should have this type of behavior towards believers and unbelievers alike, he says, for we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures living in malice and envy, hateful and detesting one another. And um, it makes me think, I often say this with uh, fellow believers, I I share my faith and I'll say something along the lines of, uh, which was given to me by a a brother, uh, Josh, but he would always say um, that our attitude should be that of a beggar who's found a place to eat. And we're just trying to point people to that same place. And so, Uh, For me, Grant, when someone who is far from God is living in a sinful lifestyle, I don't see myself as better than them. I don't see myself as greater than them. I don't see myself as being more righteous than them. I don't see myself as having any less need than they do. I am that of a beggar, and I see them as a fellow beggar. And the only difference between me as a Christian and them as a non-Christian is that I am, am the beggar who found the king's table, a place to eat. His name's Jesus. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm not trying to uh, stand above them because that's just, that's wrong. It's, it's inaccurate. I'm in no way greater than anyone. I'm a fellow sinner. And so I'm trying to point them to the king's table to have a place to eat, to partake of the, the uh, cup and the bread, uh, the body and blood of Jesus. And, and that's my desire. And so... We shouldn't be arrogant. Second Peter chapter one is the same vein of this this text that we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived. Ephesians chapter two says these same truths, uh, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. So for those who are far from God, let's be reminded that our war is not against uh, flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and the uh, present rulers in our age. And so our desire for people should be that they all come to the faith. Our desire for people should be that we show them kindness, gentleness, love, respect, dignity, worth, 
value all these things in hopes that they come to know Christ. And even if they don't, we have a good reputation with them. We have um, uh, peace with them. And that's what, what God would command of us. Uh, but whenever we get to a point, and like I said, Second Peter chapter 1 speaks of this, where we are forgetting the cleansing of our past sins, where we're forgetting that we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, etc., etc. We become arrogant. We really start to step away from uh, our, our king who saved us. And so keep that in mind. That, that's an important attitude to have, one of humility and not of arrogance, one of grace and not of, of wrath. Uh, the only person who has any room for wrath is our Lord God and Savior Jesus, and uh, he himself came to earth to save people, us included. And so we should have that same mindset, that same attitude. As he'll go on to say here in verse 4, I'll just read. He says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. This is so, so rich. I hope you can uh, see it. I hope I can teach it faithfully. But he says, um, you know, we were the foolish ones, even Christians who he's talking to. And he's saying, but this kindness of our God and our Savior, uh, his love for mankind. Uh, God loved mankind because if he didn't love mankind, he would have never sent his son. Uh, Jesus to come and pay for our sins. But out of God's love for mankind, he has chased after us even in our rebellion. And so um, God would be just to never pursue us. But we see his beauty, his kindness, his majesty, his grace, his mercy, in that while he didn't have to chase after us, he loved us. We see love in God and and he chased after us. And he says here in, in verse five that he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done. So we know, we know, we know, and hopefully if you've been watching this channel, this is going to be just a repeated theme that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. So works of the law, if we are dependent upon that, it only breeds uh, condemnation for us. So every person as they stand on their own two feet are condemned by God. Uh, They're condemned by their own sin they're condemned by all their own evil. Um, many people will say, well, why doesn't God stop this evil or that evil? And the reason is that uh, if God stopped all evil, you and I would cease to exist. And so God in his grace, um, he's allowed that um, Jesus Christ would be sent to pay for our sins because not by works of righteousness we see here we had done, but according to his mercy. And the reason for that um, is because we couldn't save ourselves even if we wanted to. Uh, we don't have righteousness. We need an alien righteousness to come on. That is the righteousness of Christ and be placed onto our account. And so um, that doesn't mean that uh, faith and works don't go hand in hand. They do. When, when a person has a genuine faith, um, good, godly, righteous works will follow right behind that. We see this in verse one, as we just read of chapter three, he wants the, the Christians the church people to be ready for every good work. So we know that good works and faith, they go hand in hand. But uh, faith uh, in the Son of God, Jesus, is how we receive our salvation. Faith in God is 
is what merits our salvation. It's what uh, brings us the right to uh, become children of God. It's, it's the work of Christ. It's not our own work. And from this genuine faith, works will follow, actions will follow, but we're saved by this faith. We're not saved by our works. And so uh, it says, according to his mercy, it says, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And so what it is, it's like a building that's so far gone, it has to be completely bulldozed, torn down and rebuilt. Um, it says that uh, the washing of regeneration and, and there's a reality that as we continue to sin, uh, there is a sin that stains the soul, there's sin that stains the body, it, it goes on to uh, darken our minds, our hearts, our, our entire being. It makes us filthy. It makes us dirty. It makes us uh, guilty. It makes us uh, shamed. Uh, and so people carry this. Uh, the evil that they've done, they carry this in a darkened soul, a darkened mind, a darkened heart. And people go through life this way until, uh, if they so choose, uh, to put their faith and trust in Jesus and to receive the Holy Spirit, this regeneration, this bringing of new life. Uh, because we and of ourselves, we don't have the life of God in us. Uh, we have the image of God, but we do not have the life of God that only comes through the Spirit. And so the washing of regeneration, uh, Christ's blood and, and the Holy Spirit symbolic of Christ's blood uh, comes to wash and make clean all that is dirty and filthy and shameful and evil within us. And so we can get rid of our shame. We can get rid of our guilt. We can get rid of um, a, a twisted conscience. Uh, we can get rid of all these things as the Holy Spirit comes in. He cleanses us from these. He regenerates us. He brings what is dead to life. He brings what is sick to be made well. And so it says, uh, regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his spirit speaking of the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Like I said, the only way in which we receive the Holy Spirit is through uh, putting our faith and trust in the one and only Savior of the world, which is Jesus. Abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. So through the grace of God, not through our own selves, we can become renewed, regenerated, justified. Uh, a good wordplay that's often used for the word justified. What does it mean? It's just if I'd never sinned, right? If you chop it up like that. So uh, justified is that you are brought into the kingdom of heaven without spot or blemish. All that dirty, filthiness of your soul, of your mind, of your heart, it's been made completely clean and washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. And so he goes on to say that uh, having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. We become sons. Jesus would say, um, you know, who are my brothers and who are my sisters? It's those who follow me. And so we come to see that uh, we become like God, not in his essence, but in his uh, nature. As Peter would say in, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, that we become partakers of the divine nature. And so our nature in and of in ourselves 
It's, it's bent towards evil. It's twisted. It's, it's corrupt. But when God gives us his nature through the Holy Spirit, we become like God in that we come to love what is good, which is something we cannot do in and of ourselves. We cannot um, in and of ourselves be righteous or holy. It's something that's brought within us through the Holy Spirit. And so uh, we become partakers of the divine nature. We become uh, like God in that sense, not that we become God, but that we become like him in his spirit as he comes to live inside of us. And it's a, it's a powerful and beautiful thing. He says in verse eight, uh, this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works, right? So we're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace through faith. We're saved by Jesus and what he's done through the power of the spirit. But he says, I want you to insist on these things, these pursuing of, uh, of good works. And, and because of Christ, he says, so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. So there's a one sense of believing God in which there's no actions that follow. And it, it's a false faith. It's an empty faith. It's a meaningless or pointless or, or a worthless faith. But uh, for those who, uh, as, he, as he says in verse 8, who have believed God that are careful to devote themselves to good works, uh, this is genuine faith. This, this is uh, the person, as we talked about in Titus chapter 2, where it's not only that they preach a gospel and they believe a gospel intellectually, but their lifestyle, their habits, their behaviors, their experience uh, is that of one of a Christian. They not only uh, believe rightly about God, but they experience God in their day-to-day life. And they experience the changing power of the Spirit and uh, come to be joined into the body of Christ through the church. And so um, he goes on to say that uh, these are good and profitable for everyone at the end of verse 8. And so we know that good works, um, it, it's... Uh, it's not that we're trying to earn our salvation or grace, but it's that we get to. It's that the Holy Spirit has changed us and brought new life. And, and we want to bring fellow beggars to the king's table. And through a pursuit of mankind uh, as beggars uh, reaching out to other beggars, we can then um, usher people in through our good works and then point to our, our father and our master. Um, and so that's the purpose behind these good works. Ultimately, it's that we want to draw people to Christ. We want to be just like Christ in our behavior and our actions. And uh, we also want uh, others to experience this grace. And so uh, he says these are good and profitable for everyone. He says in verse 9, he says, But avoid foolish debates, genealogies, quarrels and disputes about the law, he says, because the, uh, they, excuse me, are unprofitable and worthless. I want you to notice this here in verse 9. Don't take out the word foolish, okay? Because you can get really confused if, if you read, but avoid debates, genealogies, quarrels, etc., etc. No, no, no. He says, avoid foolish debates and continues, which we would believe to be foolish genealogies, foolish quarrels, foolish disputes about the law. Because Paul's not contradicting himself, the New Testament is full of debating, it's full of genealogies, it's full of quarrels, it's full of disputes about the law. 
Um, but but the foolish ones, right? And and what I think he's getting at here, as we've talked in, in Titus chapter 1 and Titus chapter 2, we have this group, you got to keep this in mind, of false teachers that is rampant in Crete, or Titus is, or this is being written to. And we know that uh, these groups of false teachers have rejected the, the collected teaching of the first elders, right? So as we talked about in uh, the earlier chapters of Titus, there was already the first council of uh, church council that took place in Jerusalem, where all the elders unanimously agreed that uh, for Gentiles, they didn't need to keep Jewish law. And so there was lots of things that this body of Holy Spirit uh, led uh, apostles that were chosen by Christ agreed upon church doctrine. But yet years later, when this is written, there are still those who are teaching and encouraging uh, heresy, those who are still teaching and encouraging what is false, what is a lie, what is not truth. And so Paul, I believe, is speaking to these things. It doesn't give us in the text the specifics of all of these things, but we know from this letter in Titus what's going on, what they're facing. And so it's not a jump or not me reading in the text to think that it's having to do with these false teachers. It's having to do with these Judaizers. And so um, what he wants them to avoid is, as spoken of elsewhere to both Titus and Timothy, these Jewish myths that are untrue, these foolish debates that, that have no weight, these foolish genealogies that um, are irrelevant, can't be backed up. Because uh, we know that there are some of these that are important, as I said, um, these foolish quarrels, these foolish disputes about the law. So anything that uh, is worth considering, worth being taught, it's taught in the New Testament. Things about the law, things about genealogies, uh, all these things are taught. But uh, there are other things that these false teachers were pursuing because they want to just create new doctrines, create new teachings. They want to make money and they want to do it through preaching the gospel. It's a false gospel. So uh, Paul wants them to just shun this, right? He wants them to uh, abandon this. He wants them to avoid it. Uh, as verse 9 says, he says, because they're unprofitable and worthless. When people get off track and start uh, pursuing ungodly things and ungodly debates, uh, it doesn't help the cause of Christ. And so Paul doesn't want Titus to get distracted with these people and with what they're teaching. He says uh, in verse 10, which I think is very helpful, he says, reject a divisive person after a first and second warning. So in regards to what he's talking about in verse 9, he says, reject a divisive person. This word divisive, which I want to show you um, in the text, it is the Greek word that we get the word heretic from. Um, someone that is uh, factious or creates factions or someone who is divisive or creates divisions. Uh, someone who, um, I want to be clear, someone who intellectually knows the truth or, or has seen the truth, but they choose instead through their will they choose what is false. They choose false doctrine. And so all that is true, all that is right, all that is orthodox or sound in the faith has been faithfully and clearly passed down to us in the Old Testament, was capitalized as Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And these teachings were faithfully passed down through Jesus and the apostles and what we have as the New Testament. 
And so some of what the New Testament is already dealing with, what this letter is dealing with, is that people are beginning to reject this um, gospel-centered truth. People are beginning to reject the very words of Jesus, uh, the very words of the apostles. And so what Paul's instruction for us is for these people who are, are causing great headaches to the pastor, um, he says that in verse 10, to reject a divisive person or a heretical person, someone insisting on false doctrine, reject a person, he says, after a first and second warning. This is really helpful, I think, and instructful for us. So what we see is that God's heart repeatedly in the New Testament is for the salvation of all people. We read this in 1 Timothy. We read this in Titus. God's desire is that everyone comes to a desire uh, to love him. God's desire is that everyone comes to a knowledge of salvation. But what can happen is that people begin to depart the faith. And even after they're confronted, as we see in verse 10, someone who has been warned a first and a second time, uh, that uh, people go on to abandon the faith. And so a proper response is that someone has created some new doctrine, someone has created some novel belief, or someone is casting doubt um, against uh, Jesus or the disciples. And then they're confronted, and in that confrontation, the Holy Spirit convicts that uh, straying person to then come back into the fold, to then come back and repent of that sin and to reject uh, those personal opinions that are unbiblical, those uh, personal beliefs that that uh, go against the very clear teaching of Scripture. And so the great goal is that these people are brought back in. But if that is not a possibility, um, Paul is giving Titus a clear instruction on church discipline, right, which Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 18. So he says, reject a divisive person, right, to reject someone could include not allowing them to lead, not allowing them to teach. It could include kicking them out of church, which I think this is what that is clearly talking about. Um, and, and so it's it's putting more than just distance from them. It's it's rejecting them, right? But it's not at the, the first sin. What we're seeing here is this is with a pattern of sin, with a lifestyle of sin, with a, a continual uh, rejection of clear truth. And if someone is choosing to walk in these false ideologies, these unbiblical and unchristian attitudes, um, after a first and second warning, we are to reject them. And that's just the clear teaching of Scripture. Um, church discipline is widely neglected in the American church. Um, most pastors are terrified or scared because, uh, quite frankly, people may would leave their church. Uh, they would lose money. They would lose their job. But to the Bible is very clear is that uh, God has called pastors to lead the church. And as leading a larger extended family, as we've been looking at in Titus and Timothy, uh, sometimes that role of a father or of a mother uh, comes with discipline. And so a father has to put his foot down and hold the ground of the church. And he has to do it in such a way that for those who are unwilling to submit to their authority, which has been given by God, for those who are unwilling to submit um, to that authority of God that, that they are representing, uh, they are to discipline them. And that may be uh, one of those first uh, three steps of Matthew 18. It, it may be that the discipline happens and that 
people repent and come back into the fold. Or it may be that, you know, you warned them a first time, you warned them a second time, you are pursuing them, and they are blatantly disregarding God and His truth. And when that happens, sadly, it's a place for uh, pastors to decide to remove someone from the church body. And uh, that is the responsibility. And a pastor who neglects this uh, is sinning as well. He says in verse 11, For you know that such a person has gone astray and is sinning. He is self-condemned. And that's the reality that the false teacher, the heretic, or as verse 10 says, the divisive person, specifically the kind of divisive person that's dividing against true doctrine, um, that person has gone astray. That's the facts. They've walked away from the Lord. They've walked away from his clear teaching and they are sinning and they're doing it to themselves. They're self-condemned. They are choosing to leave truth and walk in lies. They're choosing to leave what is godly and righteous and walk in unrighteousness and ungodliness. And so they condemn themselves. They heap this upon themselves. They make that choice to abandon Christ and his church. And so in this, they condemn themselves. He goes on to say in uh, verse uh, 12, he says that when I send Artemis or Tychus to you, uh, make every effort to come to me in Nicopolis because I've decided to spend uh, the winter there. And so Paul's giving Titus some instructions. If you haven't checked out our introduction to First and Second Timothy and Titus, I'd highly encourage you to check that out. You'll really understand why there's so much movement going on in the early church. But we do know that uh, these guys shuffled around a lot. They bounced around a lot. And uh, so he says that he was going to send... Um, one of these two people to him. He didn't know which yet. Um, he's still debating it in his mind. And he, he also encourages Titus to make every effort to come to him. Um, he says, because he's decided to spend the winter there. Uh, this is church on the move, as we talked about in the introduction video. And they're busy and they're shuffling around a lot. He says, diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey so that they will lack nothing. So provisionally, this church could help financially provide for these two that were faithfully preaching the gospel like missionaries. Uh, they could help them financially, he says, so that they will lack nothing. They have everything they need, everything they require. And he says, let our people learn to devote themselves. Here we see it again to good works over and over and over. Uh, reminds me of the book of James. How can you say you have faith unless you have good works to back it up? But he says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works for pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. So part of the church's responsibility is to care for these ministers of the faith uh, to people like, um, as we just read, Apollos, uh, which is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, or Zenos, the uh, the lawyer, part of the church's, uh, I say responsibility, but also I should say opportunity is that they get this privilege of partaking in in helping these people and, and sharing in their heavenly rewards. They get this opportunity to help provide for God's servants and God's uh, children, their brothers and sisters. And so he wants the church to be busy with these kinds of good works. Um, he says, and he caricatures it right here, he says to good works for pressing needs. So the most uh, or greatest or biggest needs are to take precedence over things that aren't needs. I think that's very helpful as well. 
He says, so that they will not be unfruitful. Because if they're neglecting to help those ministers, they're being unfruitful. If they're neglecting to do good works, they're not having a faith that is backed up in practice and it's actually an empty faith. So he wants them not to be unfruitful. He wants them to be genuine uh, followers of Jesus. He closes, he says, all those who are with me send you greetings. Uh, Greet those who love us in the faith and grace be with all of you. And so uh, with this ending of chapter three, we see that uh, Paul gives instruction for these Christians to be busy with good works, uh, for these Christians to abandon false gospels, false teachings and heresies. And for those that are unwilling to abandon these false teachings and heresies, that uh, Titus's job ultimately as that overseer, that pastor, um, is to give them the boot, to kick them out if, if uh, at worst case scenario, that's necessary after some warnings. And so he goes on to encourage the church uh, to focus on good work. So that is the conclusion of uh, Titus chapter 3. Uh, we'll be picking up uh, with Second uh, Timothy chapter 1 in the days ahead. But I would just encourage you, if you haven't yet, go check out chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Titus. And all of these videos together really paint this cool picture of what's going on in the early church. Also give us instruction for how we are to be focused as the church and how we are to be uh, living and how we are to be following Christ as the church. So I pray this is a blessing to you and I hope to uh, see you again. Thank <laughs> you.